Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Today, I want to deal with the wisdom literature, and this will include the book of Proverbs, the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. And there are certain parts of the book of Psalms that are also considered wisdom literature. There's a treasure trove of wisdom in these works. But unfortunately, they fall victim sometimes to misuse due to the very thing I've been talking about for four Sundays, a lack of understanding of how we should read them. There are three common mistakes we make in reading wisdom literature from any of these books that I have mentioned. I'll quickly go over these. Number one mistake is we have a habit sometimes of only reading bits and pieces. And if you've been listening to me for four Sundays, that is what causes us to miss the overall context. And you've heard me say context so many times, but context is so important. Context is important for the the conversation you're having with somebody else face-to-face so that you understand what they said in the context of what was said. How many of you noticed today how many people are accused of having said something uh, when it's lifted totally out of context? And somebody said, that was not the context in which I said that. So context is so vital in our communication and our understanding, and it is also vital in reading the Bible and understanding what we're reading in the Bible. So reading the bits and pieces is very tempting in the wisdom literature because you can pause at a verse and read that and say, I like what that says. I think I'll do something with that. I think I'll live by it. Or maybe that's speaking doctrine to me. But remember, there's a context to what is being said. So reading by bits and pieces, other than reading the larger context, causes us to miss some things. Missing that big picture, missing missing the big picture because we're looking too close. And mistakenly, sometimes trying to make doctrine, listen carefully to me, trying to make doctrine out of minute details. And that's because we lift the passage entirely out of context. Now, David wrote in the 37th Psalm, as I'll give you examples from time to time of what I'm trying to explain. David said in the 37th Psalm, I was young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Now, what does he mean by that? And how literal do we take Scripture? And do we take that Scripture and say, Bible promises that the children of God will never be begging bread. You already probably begin to see the conflict, don't you? Because we know of the horrible oppression of Christians around the world this very day. 
We know of people who love God and believe in Him that are hungry. There are problems we have with this if we are to take this as some sort of a guarantee or a promise that if, if you're a child of God, they'll never be forsaken and the children will never be begging bread. So this is, a, this is a perfect example of how we can read something and try to make something out of it that it was not intended to be. It doesn't mean that David's making this blanket statement concerning everybody who's righteous and any guarantees that they will have. He's just simply stating that for the most part, he understands that people who serve God are, are blessed and people who don't serve God are not blessed, but he's not saying there aren't exceptions to that observation. Furthermore, David lived a rather privileged life. And it could be from his perspective that he could honestly say, I've never seen God's people, the children of Israel, having to beg and starve like the heathen. So put it in the context of how he said it. And he would have made a valid point. What he was saying is it's so much better to be under God's guide and care than it is not to be under God's guide and care. So we don't want to become argumentative by saying, but that isn't what it says. And I don't understand that there's a guarantee. There was no guarantee there. Keep it in context. Number uh, two under this uh, three, these uh, common mistakes we make is misunderstanding terms that are used in the Bible or terms that might be used in, in wisdom literature and styles and, and categories of wisdom. And we'll talk about the categories of wisdom in a minute. Proverbs 14, 7, I'll give you another example, says, Stay away from the foolish, for you will not find knowledge on their lips. Now, if I were to share that with you today and say, Take that today and be obedient to Scripture, what would you do with that? I think there would be a legalistic approach where people would say I, to, to ungodly people, I cannot be around you because the Bible tells me I have to stay away from foolish people. I mean, I know we laugh at that, but you know somebody who does get that legalistic, don't you? And then you almost get tongue-tied trying to explain, I know what it says, but that's not what it means. And then say, you know, it becomes a whole mess. And that's just a mild example. I could do others that would probably get more personal and probably you would shut down because it's your favorite verse. (laughs) But I I just want to take an example so you can work out your own problems. (laughs) Well, first of all, let's understand what foolish means. The Bible uses the word foolish in, these, in this wisdom literature as being actually infidels. That is the better word for it. And we like to read it in the sense of foolish as we understand foolish. But it's saying it, you won't benefit a lot from hanging around infidels because they don't have a lot spiritually to offer. Now, that's a lot to put into that, but you have to understand the context. That's really what it is. If you are gaining your wisdom and your guidance from infidels, non-believers, they might give you uh, godless advice. And that happens a lot. You have to appreciate godly advice from godly people. So understand the terms and what it's saying. Number three, uh, in the case of the book of Job specifically... 
people have a problem in reading that because they fail to follow the line of argument from the beginning of the book to the end. So if you just jump into the middle of Job and you read something that somebody says, you might not know exactly how to apply that or interpret that because who was speaking? And it matters who was speaking. Was Job speaking? And did Job always have a proper understanding of God? No, he didn't. What if it was one of Job's friends speaking? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about Job later on, so I'm just going to lay this one aside. But the, the mistake we don't want to make is to fail to follow the story, the line of the argument. And I'll come back to Job in a minute. Now, I wish that everybody valued wisdom. And here's a good definition for wisdom. I don't know if I left it on my notes that I handed out to you, but this should have been one of the great nuggets. If it's not there, you should write it down. Wisdom is the ability to make godly choices in life. Who wouldn't want that? If you're not making godly choices, you're not making wise choices. The Bible gives examples of how godly wisdom was used in such things like the construction of the tabernacle. It was heavenly, godly wisdom, divinely imparted wisdom that aided in construction, in navigation. In, in, uh, uh, it aided political leaders like Joshua and David and Solomon. They relied on godly wisdom to rule their people. And wisdom is valuable to us in so many different ways. So let's take, for example, do you want to excel at your employment? Don't you think godly wisdom would be good for you? Do you want to be a great parent to your children? You need godly wisdom. You want to be the best husband or wife you can be? And you think you can figure that out on your own? You don't know how big a project you just bid off if you think that you can be the best husband or the best wife without God's wisdom in helping you to do that. You simply cannot do that. The project's too big. And we're too small. You need godly wisdom. You want to be a responsible steward? of everything that has been entrusted to you, you need godly wisdom. So there's a value to this. And we want to be able to glean good things from the wisdom literature. But here's the great irony. Only the wise people understand foolishness and they can recognize it. Only wise people have the capacity to feel foolish when they're wrong. Fools don't feel foolish. They don't recognize it. They're clueless. So we see foolish people at the same time that foolish people don't feel foolish doing the foolish things they're doing. So consequently, the fool presses on in his industry without regret, with little no motive to improve. And thus, foolishness becomes a vicious trap. We can all relate to that if we have been a part of the process of raising children. Ann and I, our three children, are, are grown and entered into adulthood. I can remember during those years of bringing my boys up, there were times when they did not understand fully what, they, what I understood, and they might do something, make a foolish decision. Now, parents, we, we, we struggle with keeping our cool when, when they keep doing foolish things. And, you know, it's, it's a real temptation to, to uh, become abusive to your child when, you, you know, you begin to, to question them, you know, what, 
what kind of fool are you? And we don't want to do that because they're in a learning process. But you know people that, that have just become so exasperated with the foolishness of their children that they become antagonistic. Well, it's difficult to watch people be foolish and not realize that they're foolish. It's difficult to be a, a resource of some wisdom and somebody not take advantage of that wisdom. We all need wisdom. We know that. There's a difference between gaining wisdom and getting wisdom. A lot of you people here have gained wisdom by life's experience. Tell me about the things you've lived through. Tell me what you learned from that. And then pass that on to somebody else. I have so many things in my life that I had experiences that I thought, you know, if I can impress that on my children, they won't have to make the same mistake I made. I've seen narrow escapes for myself because I did something foolish and, and it, it just nearly cost me physically. Uh, it could have been uh, very injurious. It could have been deadly. And, and I think to myself, you know, if I can just pass this bit of wisdom on to my children, they'll never risk, they'll never be at risk for what I just, the mistake I just made. But it seems like we don't really learn until we have experienced sometimes, you know. So there's, a, there's, there's gaining wisdom and there's getting wisdom. The heavenly wisdom is not the gained wisdom. Life experience can be beneficial for you. You learn things and, and you apply that to your life and you're better off for it. You've gained some wisdom. But there's a level above that, getting wisdom. It doesn't come from experience. The biblical wisdom, the wisdom that's from above, comes from God. He grants you wisdom. And that's a notch above anything that you have earned or gained in your life. So that's what we're trying to get people to realize. There's another level you can go to. Getting the wisdom of God. Let's just accept the fact that the wisdom literature can teach us some things. But it's not just gaining wisdom from reading this. That's good. But it's also coming to appreciate the product of wisdom to where you can operate like the people who are wise enough to write these things. Appreciating that there is a resource for your wisdom just like they found the resource for their wisdom that goes beyond just saying, well, here's a book on wise sayings and if I can memorize them and adhere to them, I'll be better off. Certainly you will. But reach a little higher. Plug into the source of wisdom like the writers had. Now, three kinds of wisdom. The first kind of wisdom is what we will call proverbial wisdom found in Proverbs. It's practical attitudes in everyday life. Old-fashioned basic values. Proverbs continuously highlights as a theme the advantage of godly wisdom over foolishness. We see these meaty little gems of wisdom that steer us away from violent crime and careless promises and laziness and dishonesty and sexual impurity. And on the positive side, we learn how it's beneficial and wise to show care and concern for the poor, respect for government, how to properly discipline children, and the wisdom of not allowing ourselves to be overtaken by alcohol or how to prepare... properly regard and honor our parents. And these are little bits and gems of wisdom. They're good. Read them. Abide by them. 
apply them. But don't stop there. Reach for the source of wisdom that inspired these people to write that thing. Proverbs are, are written in such a way that they're catchy. So therefore, you have to understand when you're reading Proverbs that they used the, uh, the least amount of words to say what they're trying to say, which means it's very easy for you to twist and misapply. You don't, you see, in order to say something uh, meaningful and keep it short, it, it resonates with us. It clicks with us. And we do that same thing with clever little sayings that we have. Sometimes uh, in, the, in the Proverbs, uh, they will use alliteration. Sometimes we use alliter- uh, alliteration, just the use of uh, look before you leap. The L is the theme there. Look before you leap. It makes it easy to remember because we use that little trick. We use single syllable words quite often in these pithy little sayings because it makes it easy to remember. If I were to say to you, let's all live by this maxim and let's memorize it. There are certain corrective measures for minor problems that when taken early in the course of action, forestall major problems from arising. And you would say, well, that's a good one. What's it mean? Or I could say, a stitch in time saves nine, and you say, I got it. So that's the reason that we make things shorter. Sometimes we make them rhyme because the more uh, complex version of what you're trying to say just doesn't resonate with anybody. In advance of committing yourself to a course of action, consider your circumstances or options. Or look before you leap. It's so simple. That's the way Proverbs are, are, are constructed, in a simpler fashion. So look for uh, their simplicity of the main message they're trying to stress with a conservation of words. First of all, In the Proverbs, rule number one is don't take a proverb too literally or too universally. It has a basic message, but it doesn't always have a literal application. Not not a legalistic to the verb application. The Proverbs 6, 27 through 29 says, Because a man... Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. There's a simple message here. Adultery is risky. It's dangerous. It's uh, it's destructive. And in wisdom, we cannot recommend it. But if somebody reads that and insists that every adulterer is going to suffer like a man who has been burned, you might find out it doesn't always happen like that because we're really living in a very slack society today where people sin without any uh, compunction. And we read what should be if people have any relationship with God, but the fact of the matter is not everybody who's a sinner is really sorry that they're sinning. Here's another one. Proverbs 16.3, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Now, we've, we've heard that. Do you take that as a promise of God that whatever you do, 
No, because whatever you do might not be what God wants you to do. So you have to be careful. And now you're, now you're beginning to apply this logically as opposed to the legalistic version of this that says the Bible says whatever you do, the Lord will prosper you. There's context here. What if you're not doing the Lord's will? Is God going to prosper that? It's just a simple proverb. We take it too literally or too universally. And some people read that to mean that no matter what their plans are, if they just commit it to the Lord, they will be guaranteed success and then they're angry at God when they don't succeed and then they don't believe God's word is real anyway. How many have ever committed a bad plan to the Lord and it failed? I have. It doesn't make the Bible wrong. It makes my understanding of what this person was trying to say wrong. Or, how many of you committed a good plan to the Lord that didn't show any sign of earthly success or success by earthly standards? I've done that. Maybe it was a good plan. Maybe God is blessing it. And success is, is uh, I'm, I'm defining success in the wrong way. I'm thinking, well, it's a good plan. I committed it to the Lord. There should be success, but I don't see anything because sometimes success is not visible. Sometimes it's success in God's eyes. And not in ours. Rule number two on the Proverbs. They are not legal guarantees from God. And we touched a little bit on that on the previous point. But a preverb, by definition, is an inexact statement. It's a figure of speech to point to a truth. They are suggestive general truths, but not legal guarantees. And if you forget that, you struggle with understanding our personal obligations in view of what a certain proverb may say. Proverbs 22, verses 26 through 27 says, Do not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, you very, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Now, we could have a lot of fun with that one. How literal, how legalistic is that statement? How specific is it? Do not shake hands in pledge. And do not put up security for debts. And so if we're going to be legalistic, we're going to say, the Bible says I can't do that. I cannot shake hands with you and make a pledge because I go home, my bed will be gone. Well, you have to be literal. If you're going to be literal, well, what's it mean? It's a general truth that you have to be cautious in your business dealings. Anybody who's quick to make an agreement with somebody else will probably end up disappointed. It's not saying you absolutely cannot make a promise by shaking somebody's hand. You cannot make a contract with anybody. If so, we're all going to hell this morning because we've done that. But you still got your bed. Learning to read the Proverbs with a balance. You want to look at that? What's the wisdom he's trying to imply here? He's trying to imply that there are certain dangers involved in that kind of activity. Let us be cautious in proceeding forth. If we should choose to shake hands in a pledge. If we should choose to put something up as, as collateral for something. Let's be very cautious because we are being warned that can go bad. But it's not a spiritual law that says if you do, you're going to pay. It's not some kind of a guarantee that if you do, it will not work for you. It's just saying use some wisdom. Another example of Proverbs twenty one twenty two. 
One who is wise can go up the city against the city of the mighty and pull down the stronghold in which they trust. One who is wise can go up against the city of the mighty and pull down the stronghold in which we ought to go. If we consider ourselves wise, wise, we ought to go over there to the Middle East right now and start pulling down some of those cities and some of those strongholds. Except once again, you have to make proper application of what this really means. Number three rule is Proverbs are worded to be memorable. They're they're abbreviated gems of wisdom. They're too short to address the subject exhaustively. That means there are times a Proverbs applies to our situation, and there are times when it does not, and it cannot apply, because they're just very brief little sayings that don't have a lot of qualifiers with them. Be cautious of that. Rule number four, some Proverbs need to be interpreted to make sense to our culture. One proverb says it's better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. We don't have the kind of roof system in our culture that's conducive to living on for any length of time. So pity the literalist, the legalist, who goes out and sits on the peak of his roof because the Bible says this is a whole lot better than staying in the house with my wife who just wants to fuss all the time. Of course, we have fun with that. We understand that they had a whole different mental picture in their culture. They had flat roofs. It was a a good place you could could stay. Nice weather, you could be up there. And he's just making a statement that sometimes rather than staying around and quarreling with somebody, it might be better just to to be by yourself for a while. And I think that's pretty obvious to everybody. We all understand that. But the same rule applies to the other Proverbs. It applies to this one. You have to keep it in moderation. You can't get legalistic about exactly, precisely what it says because it doesn't always work that way. Now we've got speculative wisdom. We get into Ecclesiastes and Job. And Ecclesiastes is a, a difficult book. If you've tried to read that, it probably left you somewhat confused because it's coming from a man that really his relationship was not that close with the Lord. And I want to come back to Ecclesiastes. Let me get on Job first. Uh, let's go back and pick up that that rule about follow the line of the argument in the book of Job. Job 15.20 says, All their days the wicked suffer torment, and the ruthless through all the years stored up for them. Taken by itself, what is said in Job, we might conclude that wicked and ruthless people know nothing but suffering and torment throughout their life. But I know a lot of wicked people that are not suffering. And I know a lot of godly people who are. So it seems to be contradictory, but it's not because it's, it's in the context of a story that is being told quoting several different kinds of characters who might be giving good advice or bad advice or they might have good theology or corrupt theology and you read it by itself and you don't know what to make out of it. Follow the line of the argument. Who said that and why did they say it? 
In the context, we understand that Job had a friend named Eliphaz that used this argument for one reason. He was trying to convince Job that his sufferings were because he had done something wicked. So he comes up with this, this homespun saying that just wicked people suffer torment. And un, implied in that is righteous people don't. So he was trying to convince Job, if you just would confess your sins, you wouldn't be suffering like this. Now that's the context for this. And he was wrong. And Job emphatically denied it. And he said, you keep telling me that I've got sin in my life and that's why I'm suffering and I keep telling you that's not what is causing this. And they argued back and forth throughout the book on this issue. And in the end, God finally speaks. After Job has spoken and his friends have spoken, God finally speaks up and he more or less validates what Job is trying to say and rebukes some of Job's Poor theology, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Well, God wasn't slaying him. But Job is just trying to say, I'm not going to give up. I may not understand what's going on, but I'm not going to give up. And that's what the experiment was all about anyway. And then he, God also validates Job's objection that I'm not being, I'm not being judged because of the sin in my life. And God and Job are talking, and Job basically asks God this question. You come to the end of the book of Job, and Job says, but why me, God? Why did you choose me? And God replies, I am sovereign, and my decisions cannot be questioned. And you have to know that whether you understand it or not, I never make mistakes. So Job may have never understood why he was selected by God. But the reason that God did this is there was a challenge put out by Satan before God. that Satan had a theory too. Satan's theory was that men will curse God and desert him when life gets bad enough for them. People only serve God because they think God's good to them. They'll serve him in the blessed times, but they will not serve God in the hard times. And Satan challenged God and said, your servant Job, he's rich, he's blessed. He doesn't really love you. He loves his earthly possessions. And if you took all those things away from him, he wouldn't have any use for you. And God says, then let's give it a try and see. You know the story of Job. Rich farmer, blessed, happy family. And his farm is gone. His, his livestock is gone. His children die. And Satan fully expects that Job is going to say, if this is the way that God is. Now, how many of you have heard that from somebody? If that's the way God is, I don't want anything to do with him. So you see, Satan has a theory based partly on what really happens with some people. They serve God as long as things are going well. And they give up on God when they meet the trials of life.
So God chose Job. Let's see what Job's made of. God knew that Job was made of something of better material. And he said to Satan, okay, you can, you can have it all except his life. You can't have his life. Job lost his health. You get this pitiful picture of this man with these, these sores, these boils all over his body, and he's scraping them with a sharp piece of pottery, crying out in personal agony. Everything he ever owned, everything he ever loved, it's all gone. There's nothing left. And his wife is standing there giving him a mess. And, you know, you need to man up and confess to God. And, I mean, the guy's got nothing left. And the sad part about it is, is how many people, they meet a difficulty. They might have lost their health. They might have lost their job. They might have lost their nest egg that they were saving for retirement. Maybe all they did was just watch a loved one suffer and die. Maybe they raised their children with Christian values, but their children, one of their children went sin crazy. Maybe they look at the violence and the suffering in this world and the little babies that are abused and the hordes of people who are literally starving to death and they give up on God. If that's the kind of God he is, I don't want anything to do with him. But this story of Job is a powerful example of somebody who managed to cling to God through every trial that came upon him. His health, his wealth, his children, all gone. He didn't understand. But the one bottom line about Job is is he refused to curse God and die. And that's the most important lesson we learn from the book of Job. So be careful when you're quoting from the book of Job. Don't quote his friends and think that somehow that represents the theology of Christianity or godliness. You might be quoting the wrong person. Follow the line of the argument. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this is a difficult book written in a rambling style. This guy's all over the map. And there seems to be a lot of contradictions in the book. But here's four themes from the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, God is the creator of all things, the indisputable reality. And he gave us this gift of life, including the burdensome nature that comes along with it. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes confesses that. God's the creator. Number two, we understand from this book, God's ways are not always understandable. I cannot comprehend everything God does. In me, through me, to me. I don't understand everything. Number three, whatever is done under the sun is not always fair or logical. We constantly see the difference between the things that are and the things the way we believe they should be. And number four, death is the great equalizer. It's important to understand the writer known as the teacher He did not possess the hope of a resurrection. And his writings are tainted with some sort of a hopelessness and some sort of a despair. And this is a book that some scholars have suggested that the book of Ecclesiastes is a picture of what a deist would live like. A deist, a person who believes there is a God 
but has no personal relationship with this God. Therefore, there is a creator, and because there is a creator, we probably deserve to do the very best that we can for our fellow man. But there's all kinds of gloom and despair and agony and troubles out there, and I don't understand these troubles and why. And this is the confusion of a person who's never come to understand there is a personal God who loves you, and you can talk to him, and you can pray to him, and he interacts with his people. That's all missing from the book of Ecclesiastes. So you don't want to go to Ecclesiastes and get your gem of wisdom for the day because it's kind of lacking in those very important things that we consider so vital to our relationship with God. If Solomon wrote this book, and most people believe that he did, he wrote it in his backslidden state. Some people believe it's that, that, that peak at that semi-moral life And we understand that these important themes of the faithfulness of God to those who trust him and and hope beyond this life, they're just not there. It's, it's It's hard to be encouraged by this book, realizing the circumstances under which it was penned. And the writer of Ecclesiastes continuously poses the hard questions but doesn't give you the good answers. So you can go there and you can identify with, yeah, I've often wondered that about life too. There's a time to be born and a time to die. How many of you have heard that quoted at a funeral? Because that's another time where we have lifted that from the context and said, well, God's got your day of death appointed for you. Now, I'm going to make you think about this. And you'll probably go away and you'll say, well, this is what I believe. Well, think about it. Because you're just, just resigned to the fact that it's a time to be born, time to die. The Bible says there's a time. That's not what the Bible was trying to imply. This was, he was not writing a theological statement about life and death when he said that. But we take it so literally that we think he's got a time appointed for us. So, you know, how do you deal with, if you believe that there's a specific day, a specific hour, a specific minute that God has, and that's all the longer you're going to live, how did the person who got murdered play into that? God had that planned? Do we, do we really believe that there are times when people catastrophically were taken too early from us? You see, all these things that we talk about, we talk freely about, but then do you go back and say, but there's a time appointed to die? Now, You believe what you want about it, but think through what you're saying. Are you going to be consistent in your theology if you believe so? If you believe there's a time appointed to die, and we go to that person who's dying in the hospital, and we say, God, would you extend their life? Are we really having any impact on the date that God has set, or does he move the date? See, there's a lot of things that goes along with this, simply because of one thing. We read something... And we make it say something far beyond what the writer intended for it to say. You know what he's saying in context? I'm so big on context. You go back to what he's just saying that there's, in throughout his writings, life is a constant ebb and flow. There's people that are born. There's people that die. You know, it's it's coming. It's going. And he's just establishing the, the transient nature of life. It's what he's talking about without making a specific biblical doctrine that we would argue about. 
And finally, as I wrap up this, this fourth part of how to read the Bible and my final point, we're going to go to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is quite an interesting book. One of the most fascinating pieces of the wisdom literature, it has all these sensual themes that are unmistakable. And the book is more often left for private reading rather than Wednesday night Bible study. Those of you who have read the Song of Solomon, can you remember the last time that you had a church Bible study in mixed company and said, we're going to read this tonight. Everybody take a verse and read it out loud. And you begin to pray, Lord, don't let me get that verse. It's an interesting book because it brings a dimension that we don't see in all the other books of the Bible. In fact, some of the early church fathers were so embarrassed because of their culture by the contents of the Songs of Solomon that they made it, uh, they allegorized it. They made it an allegory. And not only did they say that it's, it's not really what you think it is, it's a picture of how God loved Israel. And therefore, as long as we're thinking God loves Israel with all this romantic language in there, we can do that. It keeps our minds off the alternative. And then the church fathers came along and suggested it also is just an allegory for how Christ loved the church. Now we've brought some purity and some spirituality to the Song of Solomon that otherwise is kind of trashy. And they got together in an early church council and they voted on it. And they decided it is required that if you read the Song of Solomon, you think of term, in terms of Christ loving the church. That takes all the fun out of the book of Song of Solomon. I promise you. And you know when they made that in AD 550, that proclamation to interpret it as an allegory for Christ and the church prevailed until very recent years. You only read it thinking in terms of spiritual matters. But I'm here to tell you today that the Song of Solomon was a love song. And it's not an allegory for anything else. It is a love song. And the themes have to do with expressions of love and adoration and advice from observers of the romance and romantic invitations that have been recorded between the two and the need to resist the temptation to be unfaithfully attracted to anybody else and the declaration that the attraction of love is even stronger than the splendor of a king. And so there's a lot of redeemable things that come out of the Song of Solomon. First of all, there's an ethical context to this book and that is monogamous heterosexual marriage is the proper context for our sexual activity. That's a very clear message from this book. Number two, we consider that the love songs of the ancient Near East, or it's abbreviated A-N-E, ancient Near East literature, were not pornographic. Uh, they, They were centered on the attraction 
that should be in marriage. So love songs of ancient Near East literature typically speak of these kind of things. They have the themes of fidelity, warnings against cheating before and after marriage. And let me, let me just stop for a minute. Back in my days, when we would date before we were married, there were a couple of steps that people might have went through in a courtship. Uh, one of them was going steady. Now, I'm just such, uh, I'm so out of touch. Does anybody go steady anymore? Does anybody, is, that, is that a thing from generations past, or is that even a viable kind? Nobody goes steady anymore? It, because it's a, it's a bar-hopping society, is that why there's no concept of going steady? When I was in school, teenagers didn't get engaged and then unengaged. They, they went steady. So some girl could go around with a steady, a ring. I'm going steady. With my... Steady was a misnomer. Because the girl expected steady to mean steady. And the boy didn't. And so the next thing you know, she's ripping that ring off her finger and throwing it at his feet and saying, you cheated on me. But the point I'm trying to make is whether they do steady anymore or whether they do engagement anymore, that there was a concept that in a relationship there should be faithfulness. When you commit yourself to somebody... At any level, steady, engagement, or marriage, there is a concept of faithfulness. And I don't have a lot of young ladies to speak to here in this building this morning, but, you know, my message would be, perhaps they'll hear this message as it's uh, uh, on the Internet, that if you find somebody that, that promises to be faithful to you, steady, and they're not, you can't do anything with that. Your word is so important. I don't care what level. Don't make the commitment if you can't keep the commitment. Say, I don't want to be steady with you. I just want to date you. Then get it up front. Do it. But being faithful, and that's part of what is reinforced in the Song of Solomon, is faithfulness, no matter what level your relationship is. It's a trial period. Engagement's a trial period. Engagement says between two people, we have devoted ourselves to each other and nobody else. If they violate that, that's bad news. Marriage is a covenant, it's a contract. You violate that, there's problems galore that goes along with the violation of that. This last paragraph, love songs typically speak of fidelity, warnings against cheating, the preciousness of love, its joys and its pleasures, and the dangers of infidelity. Number three, read the Song of Solomon as suggestive godly choices. 
And number four, be aware that the song focuses on values that are quite different from some of the broken values we see in our day and age. Today we have sex counselors that are experts, but they're experts on things like the mechanics and the techniques and, and, and very few experts teach anything about pure and godly romance. In other words, today's experts teach you how to be self-indulgent. They promote self-indulgence. And the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, is far from anything like that. It is the opposite of that. The Song of Solomon will teach you in your relationship, it is not about you. It's about the one you love. It's not about your needs. It's about their needs. It's not about your pleasures. It's about things like faithfulness and purity and integrity. And today we're encouraged by this society to do whatever it takes to find personal fulfillment. Because, friend, you deserve it. But the Song of Solomon is about fulfilling the needs of somebody else. Whereas romance is often considered something that precedes marriage, the Song of Solomon demonstrates to us that something that romance is something that should characterize marriage and not end when you say, I do, but the beginning of a long and romantic relationship. So for the centuries that people were encouraged to read the Song of Solomon, not in its context and not as a love message, but just as an allegory for God and Israel or Christ and the church, they missed the most powerful piece of inspired literature that teaches them about the virtues of godly love in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman who are faithful and committed to each other. And that's a priceless piece of literature to put in our godly library. And we can refer back to that on what's God's purpose of a relationship with a man and a woman. And where's the romance gone? Was it gone when you got married or is it just starting? That's an odd place to end up a series of four on how to read the Bible, isn't it? But we can gain a lot of wisdom, not only from what the writers of the wisdoms shared with us, we can gain wisdom from our relationship with God. It helps us to go beyond what does the Bible say about this subject? Where in Proverbs can I find an applicable scripture for this subject? I need some wisdom. Well, you don't have to go to the book of Proverbs. You can go to the God who gave the wisdom and find wisdom for anything you need in your life. You need him. Walk with him. Trust him. Believe in him. Bow your heads.